that I that I liked for this uh, this series. Become who you are in Christ. Amen. Become who you are in Christ. Let's pray together. We come now, Lord, to your word, your God-breathed word sent to us. It comes from your mind and from your heart. We thank you the Holy Spirit was at work in it. So the very thoughts of God are set out for us in Scripture. So we submit our hearts to your truth. We receive it as being as coming from you, the word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We pray that this will be a timely word for us as individual Christians and as a community together. Help us to receive it, Lord Jesus. Amen. So a bit of background to begin with. Paul is under house arrest in Rome. It's where you see him at the very end of the book of Acts. And he sends out letters from his house arrest in Rome with, by the hands of his friends Tychicus and Onesimus. And he writes to the Philippians, the Colossians, to a man called Philemon, and this letter. This letter carries in most English versions at Ephesus, but the earliest Greek manuscripts don't have those words. In fact, the addressees is blank which is rather strange. Some say this is the letter that Paul references when he writes to the Colossians. I want you to hear the letter I sent to, the La to Laodicea as well. In Colossians he mentions a letter he'd sent to Laodicea. But it may actually be a letter that he wrote to a whole series of churches and it was to be read in church after church after church in an area of what is now Western Turkey. If you imagine the, the western side of Turkey and the, the big, what was then the big port of Ephesus and, and dozens of churches in that area. Seven of them Jesus wrote letters to at the beginning of Revelation in that same area of what we now call Turkey. All right. So the name of the particular church in the earliest versions is missing because it was addressed perhaps, probably, most New Testament scholars say, to a whole series of them. It was to be read around church after church after church. In any case, we believe that it is authentically a letter from Paul, that it is inspired by the Holy Spirit, therefore that it is scripture and it's God's timeless word for us today as well as for those first century believers. Now I've got to get into this and get the pace of it. It's a new book. I, don't, I can't approach it the same way I did Hebrews and so I'm feeling my way a bit this morning. I may actually at one point have to say that's all for today because we run out of time, but we'll see. First of all, of course, there's a greeting. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by God's will to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus. Blank. Perhaps wherever it was read, they put the church name in, so they knew it was for them. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus, a sent one, a foundation layer, a builder. It's not a title with a capital A, you know. The word Apostle has become a title, has, has bishop and pastor, and it's interesting when you go on, you know, people contact me through LinkedIn, mostly they do, you know, he's apostle so-and-so and bishop so-and-so and whatever else. And, you know, they're not, they're not really titles, they're descriptions of work you do. In the Bible, they're never capital A titles, they are just functioning work descriptions. This man was sent to build to lay foundations, to start churches, to build doctrine. He's an apostle. 
This man was built, was sent to shepherd the flock of God. He's a pastor. This one was sent to, to declare God's word and to understand God's heart and to bring insight and revelation to church. That's an apostle. That's a prophet, sorry. Do you understand? Yes. They describe what someone does. Simple as that. By God's will. Now, God's will is a big theme in this letter. God's sovereignty is one of Paul's key themes in this this letter. The will of God is both powerful and practical. Some people think that finding and knowing the will of God is some mysterious thing. Oh, I just want to know the will of God. Listen, the will of God is declared and described to us very clearly in this letter and in other New Testament letters. So watch for the phrase. When you see the phrase, the will of God, you're getting something. It's not being held back from you. You're hearing it. If we're ignorant of God's will, it's because we're not listening to God's word. All right? To the faithful saints. Let me remind you again, all Christians are saints. Not just the, thing, not just the ones that get statues outside Westminster Abbey. Or inside as well. We are called God's holy ones, and then we're called then to be God's holy ones, to live that way, becoming who we already are in Christ Jesus. We are to be faithful saints. And this is all in Christ Messiah Jesus. That's another key theme. All that we are, all that we have, is in Christ alone. Again, we're often better at singing these things than actually thinking these things, receiving them as being true. We live by faith in Christ alone. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. That's not just, hello, you know, hi. This is, may you actually receive, may you receive and know that you've received grace and peace. Grace is what rescues us and renews us, changes us from being children of the devil to being children of God. Changes us from being people of darkness to people of light. Those who now are forsaking sin and engaging in righteousness by the grace of God. That's grace. And peace is the result of grace. Peace is a heart that is settled in the acceptance and love and supply of God through Jesus. He is more than enough for us. And these things are from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Messiah. Since grace and peace come, come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus, God the Father and Jesus are, guess what, equal. When Jesus called God his Father, the Jews wanted to stone him because he made himself, quotes, equal with God. This letter has a theme of praise and blessing to God. Much of the first three chapters of this letter are expressed as prayer and praise. In fact, these verses we're going to look at today are like a Hebrew blessing. Blessed be God because of this and because of that and for this and for this. It's expressed as prayer and praise. And in this section we're going to look at, and I might not get to the prayer at the end, Paul gives praise and thanks to God the Father for his work and to God the Son for his work and to God the Holy Spirit for his work. So even here we have the Trinity in this blessing. Let's go into it. Praise to the Father. Praise or blessed be 
the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Messiah, who has blessed us. That's why I put, said blessed me, because it's the same word. We bless God because he's blessed us. Who's blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing. That is, I would read, blessing of the Spirit in the heavens. Remember that the Jews wanted to stone Jesus for calling God his Father. The Father was always the Father to the Son. From before the world was made, the Father was the Father and the Son was the Son. The Son was the beloved, eternally beloved of the Father. But when, listen to me, when Jesus was made man, the Father became also his God. The man Christ Jesus called on God as Father. And now, in and through Jesus, what is, that has now become true for us. Because in Jesus, God is our God and Father. Jesus leads us into the same relationship that he had as truly man and truly God. To call on God as his God and Father, he's now your God and Father. And he's blessed us in Messiah. The simple sense of that is that everything that is in and belongs to Jesus is now ours too. If Jesus is blessed of the Father, and that's not a question, that's a statement, then so are we, if we are in him. Now, listen, you can't claim the blessing of God outside of Jesus or when you're being unfaithful and disobedient to Jesus. Remember the teaching of Jesus in John's Gospel that we are blessed and we're fruitful when we remain and live in him and we obey him. That's the place of blessing. That's the place of fruitfulness. That's the place of joy. To live and remain in him and to do what he says, tells us. We are blessed in Christ Jesus. Here Paul emphasizes that God has placed us in him, in Christ. And therefore, that's the place we'll be blessed, in him. And we're blessed with every blessing of the Spirit. I make no apology for doing that because uh, for my work on going through, and I've done a you know, bit of research, I maintain that the word spiritual in the New Testament, all ways apart from one, and that's to evil spirits, refers to the Holy Spirit and never to our spirit. The word nowadays spiritual is used to refer to character and maturity. That's not how the New Testament uses the word. And so here I take this as being, he's blessed us with every blessing of the Spirit. More than we could ever need is available to us from heaven through the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Don't need to say that again. More than we could ever need is available to us from heaven through the Holy Spirit. Yeah. It's already ours. He's blessed us with every blessing of the Spirit. Does that mean we have it all? No. But we've only to ask so as to receive. And this happens in the heavens, in the heavenly places. And that's a phrase we'll pick up five or six times as we go through, four or five times, sorry, as we go through Ephesians together. This word is not just above, but that what is far above. The Greek is eporanios. It's far above. It's the highest heaven, the heaven of heavens. And listen to me, there are not seven heavens in the Bible, just three. There's a footnote in my notes, I'll tell you where seven heavens came from. It doesn't come from the Bible. So in Hebrew thinking and in Bible thinking, there are three heavens. The one where you see the clouds and the birds. 
The one which is above that heaven where you see what? Anybody guess what you see in the next heaven? Sun, moon, stars. But the one you can't see, the one that is far above, and in fact isn't anything to do with physics or astronomy at all, is what? The heaven of God. The highest heaven. It's beyond, it's beyond nature. It's beyond physics. It's beyond science. It's the dwelling place of God. And Christian believers in Ephesians, this letter we call Ephesians, are, we are told we are living in two dimensions. We're living on earth, but we're also living in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. It's a recurring point. We endure conflict on earth, but we, our supply comes from heaven <coughs> through the Spirit. Now listen to this. We, he chose us. God chose us in him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. He chose us in him. Not just, be, just because of him. We were chosen and given to him, put into him. Now some people really get, struggle with this chosen word. They don't like it. I grew up accepting it and I've never struggled with it in that sense but other people they, they'll get, they get fierce in their opposition to the idea that God has chosen out of all of fallen, fallen humanity he has chosen some and given them to Jesus but how else do you explain this verse and others like it well I'm not, I, I don't like your Bible what do you mean my Bible this is the Bible the whole thing I've had people throw a Bible back in my lap before now and say, I don't like what it says in your Bible. What do you mean, my Bible? Here's the truth. God has chosen some for himself. And he's given them to his son. And the son of God, Jesus, has died for them and now lives and rules over for them. And guess what? God did that before he made the world. Now, there's a mind-blowing thing for you. Before God had even created anything, he had chosen a people and given them to his son. Before man was made, and certainly before man fell, God had chosen those that he was going to give his son for. Wow. Well, that just blows me away. Good. Good. It's supposed to. It is incredible. It is beyond your mentality. And if something about God and his purposes never amazes you, you need, to, you need a bigger brain and a bigger heart that goes, wow! You say, I don't understand that. You don't have to understand it. You just need to believe it. Because it's true. Before the foundation of the world. Remember Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. That's true of us too. One of the commentaries of readings just sums these up well. He says, No one ever becomes a believer by the power of his own choice, but only because the Father draws him to Christ. Jesus said that in John. It's not that they chose God, for they became believers only because God had first chosen them. We were given to the Son and placed in the Son. And the image of Scripture of God, in, God, in Scripture of God having a book in which he writes our name is a wonderful picture, but it points to an even greater reality. We are written not in a book, but in Jesus. In fact, in Isaiah, the Lord 
Yahweh says, I've written you in the palms of my hands. We sing it, don't we, in in a song, you know. My name's on the palms of his hand. We are written in Jesus. Enclosed in him, wrapped in him. God looks at us as being in Christ and receives us in Christ. And here's the why he chose us. There's a purpose in his choosing. That we would be holy and blameless in his sight. God's choice has an end in view. To not leave us as we are, but to change and continue to change us until we can stand before him holy and blameless. I should have said to cleanse and to change. Of course, that's not where we start out. We start out, we, we, come, we come to Jesus, we, we say it, we believe it, it's true. We come to Jesus as we are, but God doesn't leave us as we are. He accepts us as he finds us, but he's at work in us to bring about this very thing, to make us holy and blameless in his sight. We could not be with him in his eternal kingdom unless he does that to us and in us. We would not endure his flaming, fiery presence except we had already been cleansed and purified and changed. This is holiness right now, to live one life with God and for God, being made ready to be with him forever. By the way, if you want to track back on that, Jack reminded me, you know, end of, end of November last year, the Sermon on the Spirit of Holiness... Go and find that one again. Look at, get into what it is to be holy. No, that one. Now, the our version generally has these first two words at the end of verse 4. They shouldn't be. They start verse 5. In love, he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself, according to his favor and will, to the praise of this glorious grace that he favored. The word there is graced. He gave grace and graced us. Within the beloved... Now, what is this? In love, he predestined us. God's choice was not just a a cold, calculating thing. It came from his heart. In love, he predestined us. Marked us out beforehand. The language in Greek is is, is like when you take a, a piece of timber and you mark it because of what you're going to make from it. Marked us out beforehand based upon his will, but also his love. He set his love upon us before we were born, before man was even made, before God made the world, from eternity. He foreloved us, as we read it in Hebrews, in Romans 9, rather. He loved us from before the beginning and gave us to Christ. We are loved with an everlasting love. Now, I... This is my kind of take on things, and you might not read this everywhere, but I think that we have confused, and theologians confuse, the words election and predestination. Elect or chosen is about God's choice, but predestination is always about God's purpose. You never find predestination without a clause that says what we're predestined to, for. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. We're predestined to be blameless and holy before him. God has a purpose. Predestination is always a purpose-centered word. God chose Abraham and predestined him to be a blessing to the nations through his seed. 
Predestined always speaks of God's purpose. We are brought by his will and choice into the love of God and the family of God so that we might be something, have something, and do something. Which is summed up by this phrase, which we'll come to. That we might be to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's our purpose. Here it Part of the purpose is that we will be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself. That's the means of bringing us to himself. Adoption in those times was not the bringing home of an infant, a baby. It was the appointment of an adult heir. That was adoption in the Greek and Roman world. You didn't take in a baby. You might do that. But but legally speaking, an adoption was when you appointed someone to be your heir. And without going back into Romans, which I'd love to, but there isn't time, the emphasis in Romans is that we are now the sons of God. That's gender inclusive there. Why does it say son so much? Because it's saying we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We're adopted, not as infants, but like adults, to be heirs, to be people with something, with some standing, with some dignity, with responsibility. Not infants, not mewling, puking babies, as as, uh, Shakespeare called them. (laughs) But people who stand, people who walk, people who do things responsibly and with authority, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, in accordance with his favor or pleasure and will. Why is God doing this? Because it pleases him to do so. It's his joy. God is glad to choose and adopt us to himself. Our only real and final joy is to enter into his joy. Do you remember Psalm 16 verse 11? In your presence is abundant joy. In your right hand are eternal pleasures. What does Jesus say to the good and faithful servants in his parables? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. God's invitation to us is to enter into his joy. And choosing us and giving us to his son so that we might be with him is an expression of God's joy. He joys over his children. He has pleasure in those who trust in him and those who hope in his mercy. I said before, this is not cold calculating. God has done these things from his heart and for his own joy. When we see it, I must not shout so loud. When we see it and when we embrace it, guess what? We begin to experience something of the joy of God too. It's a joyful thing to submit to the truth and say, yes, Lord. Amen. And all of this is to the praise of his glorious grace with which he graced us in the beloved. Paul actually uses in Greek the words grace and graced. Charis and charistal. Grace is not out there, it's in here. It's poured upon us and into us. And grace is bigger and greater and better than many Christians suppose. Grace doesn't merely forgive It changes and empowers us. We were singing earlier about to break every chain. 
Grace brings not just forgiveness, but freedom. Romans again. How shall we continue in sin have received this grace? Don't you know that grace frees us? Gives us opportunity to live a new life? I'm stumbling over my own words here. One Frenchman, this is not a criticism of the French, it's just an example. Uh, one Frenchman who was living in Africa was challenged by a Christian man there about his drunkenness and sexual immorality. And replied in French, of course, which I won't do, the good God will forgive me, that is his business. That is a gross misrepresentation of grace. Grace frees as well as forgives. The Lord Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Now, not just finally, but progressively now. And all of this is in the beloved. Let me just concentrate on that word a minute, beloved. To us, Jesus is Savior and Lord, but to God, the Father, he is the beloved. He's God's unique, dear, only son. And when we learn from this letter and from other scriptures how the Father has placed us in the Son and loves and accept us, accepts us in the Son, it's in the Beloved. How big is that love? To swing that another way, if God gave his Beloved up to the cross for us, how much does God love us? He exchanged his dear only son. You remember the language that God used to Abraham, because you've not withheld your, own, your son, your only son from me. Why was God saying that? Because God was already reviewing Calvary when he would give up his only dear son for us. We remember it in communion. The beloved was crucified so we might be in the beloved. And the next verse goes on to praise for the Son. Come on, machine. We have redemption in Him, in Jesus, through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. The word redemption means rescue by ransom. A price is paid to bring about freedom and rescue. A price is paid to bring about rescue and freedom. Since we have been redeemed, ransomed, we are now free. But we are also no longer our own. We are not free to please ourselves, but to please him who has bought us. We're not free to do our own thing. A lot of people walk around nowadays thinking the blessing of God is, God bless me to do my thing. You've missed the point. We've been set free to be slaves of God. Slaves of righteousness. Jesus has bought us for himself by the price of his own blood. I've given you some scriptures on that. Through his blood, blood being in scripture a shorthand every time, for all of the suffering and death of Jesus the violence and shame that he bore in our place as our substitute for our son is summed up in that just that one word, blood, the blood of Christ. In Acts 20, Paul even calls it the blood of God. 
And this has produced for us the forgiveness of our trespasses, of our sins. Which is amazing. The very first thing you must understand if you're a new Christian is this, and you should understand this, your sins are forgiven because of him. But forgiveness is the beginning of grace, not the end of grace. It's where grace reaches us. So we know we're cleansed from our past and we now have, can begin to live a new life. No longer the old one, but a new life. Redemption has begun but will not be complete until we stand before God as he has predestined us, resurrected, holy human beings, the children of God, shining in and with the light of their Father in his eternal kingdom. Listen to this, this extraordinary lavish language now, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. It's as if God were a billionaire lavishing his wealth on us. But the commodity here is not money, it's grace. The riches of his grace. Paul often uses this word riches when speaking of God. But he never means money and wealth at all. He's talking about God's goodness and grace. Lavished. And I believe that that, that sentence there as it's constructed in the version I'm using at the moment here, Holman Christian, and is right. His grace is lavished on us, and so is his wisdom and understanding lavished on us. It's not just his wisdom and understanding. Those flow to us as well from God. Grace, wisdom, understanding, knowledge flow to us from our incredibly generous God. How generous is God? The parable Jesus gave us is is about the Father. You know, we talk about the prodigal son. It's the wrong title. It's the prodigal father, the father who is lavish. The father who is incredibly, stupidly almost generous in the way he takes back a complete rebel, vagabond. What a wasted, what a waster that son was. But the father embraces him, gives him the best. How extraordinary, how generous. God lavishes grace upon us. Sorry, I'm off my topic. Let's get back to this. With all wisdom and understanding, God wants us to receive his grace and he also wants us to understand his purpose of grace. He lavishes wisdom and understanding on us. That's why I understand this phrase. We should know and understand the will of God. The God children of God are to be the wise ones in this world, not the stupid ones. We're the, we're the ones that should have our heads screwed on straight to see it the right way, to call it the way it is. No longer foolish, no longer having minds that are darkened and don't see and don't receive the light of God. But there's a process of wisdom which works like this. We see, we understand, we do. We act. And if you've seen it and you know it, you're not wise until you do it. Wisdom isn't complete until you do what you know. And so God's word shapes our lives if we will be made wise. Wisdom always ends up being practical. It's never just theory, it's never just idea. Biblical wisdom, godly wisdom, always ends up being practical. It's something in the end we do and act upon. And he made known to us the mystery of his will. Oh, you're going to stuck at the word mystery now. Oh, it's a mystery in it. I can't understand it, it's a mystery. That's how bad my bone and accent's got now. 
That's where I grew up. <laughs> he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. There's his pleasure and joy again. That he planned in Jesus before the, for the administration of the days of fulfillment to bring everything together in Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth in here. Now listen, he made note to us the mystery of his will. In the New Testament, you never meet the word mystery without the mystery being immediately opened and explained to us. God is not locking something away for us, from us to himself. But in the New Testament, again and again, and again especially when Paul uses this word mystery, and only Paul does, he's opening up something that God has hidden in the past but now is revealed. see it again in chapter 3. The mystery here is about Jesus himself, that Christ would come, that he would die and rise again, and that through his resurrection and he's now receiving all power and all authority, everything in all creation is going to be brought under his rule and his authority until it's all done and then the end will come. Now that is not what the Jewish teachers and scholars were expecting. They thought they'd got God's prophetic scriptures all figured out but God's wisdom was beyond theirs. And Jesus reigns now from heavenly Zion, not from earthly Jerusalem. And he will reign until everything is under his feet. We don't yet see all things under his feet, but God has purposed it and it can't fail. And all of this is according to God's good pleasure, his joyful plan. <laughs> his joyful plan that he planned in Jesus. The plan of the ages is completely wrapped up in Jesus. That's why when somebody gets into some prophetic analysis and foretelling and whatever about this and this and this, when, they, when, they've, when they've forgotten Jesus, I've, 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 I've lost them. I don't want to know anymore. This is about Jesus. It's not about geography. It's not about history. It's not about politics. It's not about predictions. The future, the present, and the past are all about Jesus. It's wrapped up in him. The plan was completely made before creation. And again, it's for God's good pleasure. So right now, we are in the last days. They've happened since Jesus came to earth. We're living in the age of Messiah, the Asian reign of Jesus. These are the days of the fulfillment of all that went before, all that God spoke through the biblical prophets. The government, according to Isaiah, is now upon the shoulders of Jesus. The Father has given the Son the kingdom. And he will complete all God's saving purpose and gather in all of God's chosen children. And then Jesus himself will return to judge the world and bring about the resurrection and the recreation of all things. Here's God's purpose, to bring together everything in all creation, in Messiah. You can, you, if you read Colossians 2, it talks about all creation. Both things in heaven and things on earth in him. Jesus is the ruler not just of the church but the cosmos of everything. Everything in all creation must come to order under him. God's name, to quote the, pat the pattern prayer, must be honoured and his kingdom must come and his kingdom must be done on earth as it is in heaven. When everything's been brought under the rule of Jesus, according to the Revelation 21 and 22, there'll no longer be a separation will no longer be a, men, a thinking of there's heaven and there's earth. They become joined. God himself lives amongst his people and there's no longer any separation between what we call heaven and what we call earth. 
Move on, verse 11. We've also received an inheritance in him. Well, of course we have if we're, of, if we're sons of God. Of course we have. How can you be an heir and not receive an inheritance? Predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will so that we who had already put our hope in the Messiah might bring praise to his glory. But why does Paul say we have also? We have also. Well, because there's a little background to this. He's writing to people who are predominantly Gentiles. They didn't grow up as Jewish people. They weren't part of the commonwealth of Israel, as Paul calls it. They grew up as godless people. There's a big world difference between the Gentile world and the Jewish world. It's not that the Jewish people did not know sin and weren't sinful. Yeah, there was plenty of sin. They, you know, they knew all about pride and they knew all about greed and all sorts of things. But there were some things that never really happened much amongst the Jewish people but were very commonplace amongst the Gentiles. Two things particularly. Idolatry, the worship of idols and sexual immorality, including homosexuality, were just normal amongst the Gentiles. So the extraordinary thing is this. We also, we who came not from that stock, but from a very different stock, from a wild stock, this godless, Gentile, national, worldwide group of people, we have also received an inheritance in who? Well, substitute the word Messiah there, and you begin to get it. We have received this inheritance in Messiah, which was, how did we get there? Because in Jesus, the seed of Abraham, the promise of God was, all the nations will be blessed. We're brought in to the covenants of God. We're brought in to the commonwealth of Israel, to all the promises that God made to them. How? Through Jesus. Because we are in Messiah. That mystery, the divine plan that was hidden from long ages, that though God chose Abraham and promised that in his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed, in Jesus, the promised Messiah, the promised seed of Abraham, the Gentiles are made co-heirs with God and are included in what Paul terms the Israel of God, his chosen family. That we will see in chapter 3 was a mystery hidden a long time, but is now revealed. Paul calls it in Ephesians 3, one new man, one new humanity in Messiah Jesus. We're predestined, chosen and marked out for this inheritance according to his purpose. Not only saved according to the riches of his grace, but according to his sovereign and irresistible plan. Adopted through Jesus Christ to himself. He's brought us to himself in his son, made us his children in his son, and, listen, is making us to become like his son. We will bear the family likeness. And he does it as he works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will. That's a good definition of the sovereignty of God right there. He does everything, makes everything work together according to his own decision. His own will. 
Now, it's only because God works everything in agreement with the decision of his own will that we can quote Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Because it is purpose, because it is will, it is decision, he's working it all out. Listen, my friend, things don't just work out, God works them out. We don't believe in some kind of fate. We trust him by faith. Our sovereign king, our sovereign God, who works all things according to the pleasure of his own will, works all things, in all things, for our good, if we love him and we're called according to his purpose. He works it out. So that we who had already put our hope in Messiah might bring praise to his glory. God's praise and glory are the focus of our redemption in Jesus. And here's the thing, you see, we get the gospel, we think the gospel is all about, oh, we're, we're such poor, simple, really hungry, thirsty, sinful people. Oh, we really need God. Well, that's true. But you know why God saves us? For his pleasure. For his own glory. He has pity on our need, but the gospel is not about our need. It's about his glory. It's about the glory of his grace. The, God, the gospel of the great God. The gospel of the good God. I'm quoting Romans again. I mustn't preach Romans, David. You're in a vision. We exist. We have been redeemed for the praise of his glory. Okay, we're going to do praise to the Spirit and then we're going to leave the prayer till next week because I will not have time. Verse 13 and 14. We praise and honor the work of the Holy Spirit and this blessing of Paul. When you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When you believed, when you heard, when you believed. Now, you know, many, many people hear the word of God, maybe even here on a Sunday, think, it's good, I heard the word today. Yeah, did you believe it? Did you believe it? Did it change the way you think? Did it change, further than that, the way you live? Because truth is the wisdom of God. It's supposed to change the way we think and therefore the way we live. This is the wisdom of God in Scripture. And here Paul says, When you heard, you believed, and you were sealed. By the Holy Spirit who begins to work in us. This preaching, this Bible, the declaration of God's truth is God's chosen means of calling those who are called and of changing those who need to be changed. We can use different methods to communicate the Bible. I thank God for good videos and, and all that kind of thing. But we cannot change the message because we're the same people and Jesus is the same Savior. Amen. We haven't changed in 2,000 years, folks. That's why the Bible's so relevant. You read it, it's like it was written yesterday. Because we're the same kind of people. But thank God, Jesus is the same Savior. It's the gospel of our salvation. It's by this message, this truth, that we're saved. It's through hearing and believing the word of his grace that we receive grace. And we are cleansed and begin to change. And the Holy Spirit is the agent of that change in us. As we'll see in chapter 2. 
He works through God's word to bring us to faith and obedience to Jesus. And the impact or process of that change in us when it begins is called, guess what? Repentance or conversion. It's a big change, but it's the beginning of further change. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, this is not about being filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. Because here it says every Christian who has believed and received the gospel, at that moment, at that time, is sealed with the Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit is God's gift to us, and the presence of the Holy Spirit living in and with us is the seal of God upon us. Let me explain this seal to you. In old times, letters, parcels, even sacks of grain and casks of wine were sealed. A mark was put upon them. The mark of the owner was on them. The seal was often attached to like an address label, or the address was written on the box or on on the clay of the pot stamped into the clay of the pot. This must arrive at this owner's premises. He's bought it here. It's got to arrive there. We are sealed with the seal of the Holy Spirit. We've been born at Calvary, and we're going to arrive at heaven. Amen. Amen. Why? Because the owner says so. And in those days, when the seal was there on the, on the flask of wine or the, or the barrel of, 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 of olive oil or whatever, woe betide you if you nicked it or broke it. And the more important the owner was, the more in trouble you were in. Guess how much trouble you're in if you mess about with his seals, with what belongs to him. You're in deep trouble. God says, he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. Sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. God seals us to himself by the Spirit and we bear the seal until we arrive at our destination, God's eternal home. That's why we need to be careful not to upset the Holy Spirit, to grieve the Holy Spirit. Because when we live in a disobedient way, in an unruly way, we don't sense his presence. He's still there, but we don't sense his presence. We're still sealed, but we don't feel it. But when our hearts have been cleansed, when we know again his forgiveness and his restoration, then we we, we sense the love of God and the peace of God and the joy of God as they're communicated to us by the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit is never away from us. But it can be very quiet when we are being what we shouldn't be. Last verse for today. No, no, there's one more. Sorry. Verse 14. Last verse for today. We're not going to do the prayer of the saints. I didn't think we would. Come back. He is the down payment of our inheritance. Oh, wow. He is the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. The down payment of our inheritance. He is the foretaste of what our eternal lifestyle. The presence of the Holy Spirit living in and with us is our deposit and guarantee that we have believed the right thing. We're on the right journey. Our future is eternally secure. See, if you make a down payment on a house or a car and then you turn up and it's not yours, you'd be pretty mad. But I made a payment for that. The Holy Spirit in us is the evidence that we are purchased by Christ. The payment has been made. And we are God's children. 
secure in his love, headed for home. The down payment of eternal inheritance is your life by faith in Christ Jesus, sealed by the Holy Spirit. The love and joy and peace we know at times now are only, only fortes, only pointers to what we will know then. Because the day will come when he will redeem his possession. You think, well, hasn't Jesus redeemed us? Yes, he has paid the full price. But we have not received the full benefit. If you think that you or I are the finished goods, I'm, I'm disappointed. I, I, I'm not pleased. But if, as John Glass said twice when he's come to us, the best is yet to come. That's not to honor Frank Sinatra's song. But we live in hope. That's next week, David. I've got to do that next week. Let me say this, this much this week. We live in hope. We know we don't have it now, but we know we will. Yes, amen. We live in hope of what? The full redemption of God's possession. That's us. That's us. When we will live before him. When he raises us from the dead to immortality and glory. We've just run in those verses there through the words promise, inheritance, possession. Those are all words that were used in the Old Testament of just Israel. But in Messiah, the true and final Israel, Jacob of God, Jews and Gentiles are brought together to be the community and the family of God, the Israel of God. And it's to the praise of the glory of his grace. So let me skip to how I was going to finish some more, but we'll do this some more next week. I th had the foresight to print this out, so I'm not going like this. Ephesians takes us to the deepest questions about ourselves. Who am I? It answers that question about our identity. Identity is this. We are in Christ Jesus now. And we will be in him and with him forever. We'll only know what to do with our lives when we understand who we are. So let me just read this to you. A Christian is one who is joined to Jesus, given to him by the Father before time, brought to faith in time by the working of God's power through the Holy Spirit. Their past sins are forgiven because of the blood of Jesus who rules over them now as Saviour and Lord. And they are even now being supplied and supported by the Spirit from heaven who is the deposit and foretaste of their future eternal life. Though they live on earth, their citizenship, their true belonging is in heaven. And their inheritance is the eternal kingdom of God. Our true identity is found only in Christ as a child and heir of God, a member of his family. Why am I a Christian? Because I made a decision? No. It is by the will and grace of God. Why do I even exist? It is for the praise of the glory of his grace. So how is life? How is your life? Long answer, I know. You see, if we're not convinced of these things, we might live just pretty much like those people who don't know God. But if we're persuaded of these things, we will live for him who chose us and redeemed us and calls us and supplies and strengthens us. We will not live ordinary lives. 
we will live with wisdom as having and being light in a dark world for the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen. We'll come to the prayer next Sunday. Let's pray together, then we're going to break bread. <coughs> Lord, it is, it is right that our hearts jump with amazement and joy at your truth because what you have done for us, you did not do out of a cold heart, but out of a heart of love and a heart that was full of joy. <laughs> you did this in love. You did this of your good pleasure for your own joy. Now we are your children. We know we don't please you at all times. We pray that we might, uh, we might understand these things so that we begin to live under the name you called us, under the things you say about us. We are your saints. We are your children. We are beloved in the beloved. We are even now the heirs of God. I pray that these things may form our hearts and reshape our living so that you might be praised and your grace might be glorified in us and that Jesus' name might be very much honoured by us and through us. Let me just suggest to you this morning that if you have never known what it is to be turned in your heart and mind to Jesus, that repentance and conversion, of the, the, the moment comes when you know God has spoken to you and you need to change. So what do you do? You call out to him. For his grace. You call out to him for his help. You call out to him for his strength and his power to work a change in you so that from this day you are living a new life and letting go of an old life. Ask him to do it for you right now. In the name of the Lord Jesus. The power of Jesus' name does what? We sang it earlier. Breaks every chain. And you can sit there all day and tell him why you can't and shouldn't and can't, could never be a Christian. And he, he, he refuses to accept your argument. You just need to call on his name. And say, please, Lord Jesus, today, bring forgiveness and freedom, like the preacher's been talking about, to me as I look to you, Jesus. Lord Jesus. Call on his name. Do it now. Blessed be his name. <laughs> Would those who are serving us in breaking bread please come up, please? I'm sure there's a few people that are lined up to do it. Thank you.